Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about the great books. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. I'm Dr. Junius Johnson. And today we are you're getting a, a combo, a two, for, two for the price of one. We're talking about Poetics by Aristotle and Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. But first, uh, Junius, how are you doing? Uh, doing pretty well. Summer's drawn to a close. The kids are back in school, and uh, which for me means a more settled schedule and it's nice i'm getting some some solid reading time every morning it's it's very civilized excellent excellent the the uh the intellectual life that's right well our son starts school his first year of school in a week a week from today so hopefully we'll have the same uh, experience there and it'll be very leisurely big day big day so we are talking about oedipus and aristotle i think uh, the way i'm envisioning this and maybe you think a little differently i don't know but uh, Aristotle is is going to be helpful in talking about sort of the technical aspects of Oedipus, but I think Oedipus really is sort of the center of what we're going to be talking about. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about history with the text. Wh when did you first encounter uh, this terrible, terrible story? <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly. It was something. It was before college. I, I was. I, I imagine it was in high school. Um, it may have been even sooner. Um, maybe around my freshman year of high school or something like that, you know, assigned for school. Most of the books that were assigned for school, I didn't have much, I didn't feel much connection to. And I've, I've written about that in other places and um, talked about that. But, um, but this one grabbed me. This one got me. Um, I, I understood right away what was going on here, the different aspects of, you know, just the big, huge, shocking turn that happens partway through and everything. Uh, referencing the riddling of the Sphinx and all that. I mean, I was really, I was really taken with all the aspects of it right away. And so this is one of the greats that I never needed any convincing about. I knew from even before I was big into classical literature that this was going to be, that this was something worth reading. Hmm. How about you? Yeah, for me, it was the same. I read it in high school. Um, I think I was a senior in high school. I took a sort of ancient literature course. That's where I read the Iliad and the Odyssey for the first mm -hmm. time. Uh, Theogony and uh, Oedipus Rex was a part of that as well. So uh, read it then, have revisited a few times, took um, took a lit class in college where we also read it and read a chunk of poetics as well. Mm -hmm. So um, So both texts are familiar. And of course, it's a story that's culturally we all sort of know just by invoking the titular character but uh mm. yeah but it's it's uh it's an interesting story and i read it again yesterday and i i actually for the first time read it aloud mm. uh, i was just in my office at the church and thought you know it was a it was performed and i have always read it silently kind of in my head but i thought it was it added to it to kind of actually say the words and um, walk through it in that way. It, it kind of helped me see it, I think, in a slightly different and better light. Yeah, but I've never, I actually haven't tried that. Um, I should do that. I've seen a, I remember a very good production of Medea um, when I was in high school. Um, but yeah, I've not tried it with this text. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah, it just adds that sort of dramatic flair to it. You know, you can actually speak as the characters and yeah. add some inflection. And of course, no one was at the church or else they would have been absolutely terrified, I'm sure. Or pressed into service of the chorus. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, um, perhaps we could talk at the beginning, at the outset, a little bit about why Aristotle views Oedipus as such a monumental work in terms of tragedy. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating question because it's not like there's any shortage of material for him to reflect on. I mean, he's 
we may know one or two or three or four Greek tragedies, and so we think, oh, of course he's picking one of the great ones. But I mean, he's he knows dozens of these things, and there's a, a rich history of these things uh, going going back for decades that he's choosing from. And so this is a very considered choice for to pick this one out of the crowd. Um, and it is interesting for it's unusual for Aristotle to get that specific. I think, right? I mean, he'll often he'll say these are the principles, and this is the way things sort of ought to be. But for him to say and here's the perfect tragedy, and they should all be like this. That's that's not very like the philosopher. Yeah, yeah. I, that was something I really appreciated, kind of thought was a little almost quirky about Poetics, is how opinionated he is about specific aspects of plot and, yeah. and components of a story. Uh, he treats it very much like it should be obvious to everyone. Like, well, of course you would write a tragedy with this and not that. Right. Or doing this and and you know, but you wouldn't want or this is second best and this is third best, and it's obvious to everyone that this is the case. And uh, I don't know, it was very interesting. Um, and I, I think it's a good demonstration uh of kind of reasoning or at least of simple apprehension, you know, the sort of mm. first act of the mind where you are defining things, and he'll because he'll say a plot is and then he'll give you a genus in which it belongs and then the specific difference that sets it apart from everything else in that genus. And uh, so just from a reasoning perspective, I, I kind of enjoyed seeing what Aristotle does there because it's so short. It's such a short work and it's not mm -hmm. that complicated. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of cool to see him do that. But I did find it a, a, a kind of funny just how opinionated he was. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And it, it, I've encountered this in other ancient literary criticism as well. Um, thinking about Longinus, who writes a great text on the on greatness, on the sublime. And um, he's very clear that the the Iliad is the pinnacle of Greek literature and that the Odyssey is a degeneration from that. Right. Now he'll he'll go on to say, you know, it, it, it suffers from the fact that Homer is old and his genius has gotten tired. But he goes on to say, of course, you know, old Homer is still Homer, so it's still better than everybody else. But, you know, it's, he still makes that difference. So I guess it was part of the way you did theory back in the day, you did criticism back in the day, was you had, you know, strong opinions and you were pretty unequivocal about that. I guess that today modern critics are also opinionated. It's just, I guess I, you don't see a lot, in, at least in my opinion, of modern critics lay out such a detailed foundation as to why they feel the way they do about a film they'll just sort of tell you how they feel about that particular film without giving you a lot of insight i think into the criteria as to what what makes it good what makes it bad yeah um, at least in the in the in the theoretical realm yeah that's right and and so it's it's really he's doing two things at once right he's both doing what we think he's doing when we see the title poetics what we've come to expect which is laying that groundwork for criticism and theory and in doing the differentiation of things, but he's also doing the critical work on a specific literary text, which usually in our day, in our time, those are two separate tasks that wouldn't come at the same time. Um, yeah, you might have discussion of a, you know, for, for instance, the thing I mean, you can see the sort of thing I mean in Shakespeare's play, blah, 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 but you wouldn't sort of say, well, okay, so Hamlet's the perfect play. And right. so we're going to develop our entire theory based upon Hamlet. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could see Roger Ebert doing this about like uh, the Dark Knight or something. You know, the Dark Knight is the perfect film. <laughs> so, what is it about um, about Oedipus that that makes it the perfect tragedy? Then, why is it such a template? 
it's you know it, it i find i feel like this is a uh chicken or the egg kind of question right i mean is it that aristotle loved oedipus rex so much that all of his thoughts around tragedy bent around that or is it that oedipus rex he found the perfect instantiation of all the commitments that he had come to through speculative reason about tragedy and therefore holds it up and i don't i don't i didn't find anything in the text to indicate which of those would be true so if it's the if it's the first instance if he just loves this play you know little baby aristotle was the first play he saw at the movie theater and so it just kind of left this deep imprint on his mind um and he goes to school and is talking well can't stop talking about it and plato's like god you shut up um then there's not there's not really a, a very meaningful answer to that question but if it's the second then um i suppose the question then turns into why does aristotle so value things like unity of place unity of time um this the sudden reversal the greatness of the characters all of these sorts of things and and the the poetics proceeds in such a way that you could naturally read it as as in that direction that these philosophical principles were instantiated in this play um and if that's the case then i think you know what aristotle's got in mind is um something like a harmo harmonia of um a moderation right? a proper tuning of the big and the small mm -hmm. of the macro and the micro because it's gotta you want big personages you want noble characters who are better than us and you're going to put them up there on the screen or down there on the stage. But at the same time, you need to shrink the scope down to ideally one day in their life. And everything in their life is going to be viewed from the standpoint of the events of this one 24 hours. Right. Uh, and, and, and so if you don't get that balance right of the big and the small, if you go too big on the time scale or too small with your character, then it's going to fail to move us in just the right sort of way. And so it's almost an anatomy of what grabs us by the heart and yanks us around a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is why for him, there's a clear ranking within tragedy of the elements that are the most important plot being the first, the character being the second and reasoning being the third or kind of the disclosure aspect being yeah. the third, but, but that the care, like, you know, I think in modern times, we spend a lot of time on character. You know, we have things like um, I, we've talked about this way back when we did uh, Macbeth, um, you know, about the play wicked mm. and how it's, you know, sort of a character study into how did she get this way. And so you kind of track her whole life, the, the wicked witch's whole life. And you, you realize why she is the way she is, you know, right. But, in this, you almost get the feeling that the character is important. It has to be someone noble. It has to be someone great. But, you know, they're they're just sort of human. I mean, that's kind of what makes them makes it more tragic. If yeah. they were if they were perfect, then you couldn't have it. If they were flawed, uh, you know, incredibly flawed, then it wouldn't be that shocking or we wouldn't really feel uh, bad for them. But they they have to just kind of be people you know yeah yeah that's right um yeah they have to be they have to be men but they have to be better than us if they're you know let's let's talk about the other side of this for a second the comedy 
which we get the introductory statements about what comedy should be, they have to be worse than us. Yes. And it shows the ridiculous in a certain, a particular kind of ridiculous, the kind of ridiculous that doesn't harm anyone, right? Um, and he says the ridiculous is a species of the ugly. <laughs> yes, yes. The comedy is all about that, right? By the way, this is, okay, talk about strong opinions as a critic. I, I, I do not like um, physical comedy, mm. uh, most of the works of you know someone like a Will Ferrell, uh, those kinds of movies don't really connect with me. I don't find them very funny. Home of the Home Alone movies, I didn't find particularly funny, just painful. Um, and, and I've got Aristotle on my side with this, right? Because they go beyond the ridiculous to actual harm. And he didn't yeah. think that it, it, you can delight in harm. That's fine, but that's not comedy. That's tragedy. That's the for, wrong genre. Right? For Aristotle, <laughs> the 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 best kind of comedy I think would be sort of like a stoner Judd Apatow comedy yeah. type. You know, they're they're not really great people. You don't want to emulate them, but they're it is you know, it's yeah, fairly harmless. Yeah. So so if we had the second book of the Poetics, which is the one that was meant to cover comedy. Um, we would discover, in fact, that like Beavis and Butthead is the, the right. ideal comedy. Right? Knocked up or something. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so we don't have that. And we believe Aristotle wrote it and that it just didn't survive antiquity. There are references to it other places. Uh, um, Umberto Eco is the name of the rose, centers around the there being a medieval manuscript of Aristotle, the second book of the Poetics, and that's a delightful conceit. But, um, yeah, so we've got to, they've got to be better than us, but they've got to be enough like us because we want to identify with them. And, and that's important for evoking both the um, the pity that we're going to feel and also the fear, mm -hmm. because if, if they're not like us, then we won't fear that could happen to us. And if they're not like us, we won't pity them for what's going on to them as well. Mm. Absolutely. And what about, um, what about reasoning, the disclosure of, of meaning or motive? Uh, he says, this is the third most important thing. Interestingly though, in Oedipus, when I was reading it, I almost thought that, in terms of the presentation of the play, motive is almost more important than character. Mm. In that you could have Oedipus, I mean, he's a good guy. I mean, he saves the city and all that. Uh, but you could have a generally noble leader who pretty much does anything from any time. I mean, I don't I don't know that it has to be uh, isolated to that particular thing. But the, but the motive of, especially once he makes that decision that he's going to find the truth no matter what, I mean, that really is the driving force of everything. Yeah. I guess you could say maybe that motive is tied to who he is. Like if he wasn't uh, as good of a person as, as, a, as a great noble, maybe he wouldn't have that impulse or that meaning. But I don't know. It, it was uh, I felt like the reasoning of the play really drove the plot forward significantly more than his character. I, I see where you're coming from with that. And, I, and I'm sympathetic with that. I don't know what I think. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm going to have to think this through a second. And so I'm going to take everyone on a little bit of a detour to get to get to this. So let's see where we have to go. Um, we have to remember that the story of what went down at Thebes is as big a deal and in some ways a bigger deal than the Trojan War. Right. This is a massive, massive thing. Um, I, we talked when we did the Iliad about how there was, you know, Homer's living on the other side of a cultural collapse from the Trojan War. And we see this in the forgetfulness of like how to use chariots in war because he doesn't know these things anymore. Um, they don't really have chariots anymore, but they did have them before and they will have them again. Um, 
the question of, and, and the Trojan War is meant to account in many ways for part of that past, but the, the bigger part of that is uh, accounted for by the fall of Thebes, which redistributed power in the Peloponnesian Peninsula and paved the way for the rise of Athens and Sparta. And so within Greece, there's a straight line from the Theban War to the Peloponnesian War. And the Trojan War is the outlier to that, except that it, it allows Grecian culture to ascend such that the Peloponnesian War has the um, implications of a world war, because it's which of these two cities will dominate the entire Mediterranean. The fathers of the heroes who fought at Troy fought at Thebes. The Trojan War, the Theban War, excuse me, the Theban War is between Oedipus's two sons. And so the seven against Thebes, um, which is a play that um, uh, I think Sophocles, no, that um, who was it, Aeschylus wrote, um, that tells the story in many ways of the of this, this Theban war battle. It's one of the major versions we have until we get all the way to Statius and the Latin epic version of that down the line. Um, you've, you've got this. It's really the, the story of these two brothers and the heroes they gather around themselves who are the fathers of the men who will fight at Troy. And when Nestor and the Iliad says, oh, when I was young, we had the heroes were way better. Those are the Theban heroes. Mm -hmm. Okay, So Oedipus, um, what happens with Oedipus is at the head of the collapse of Thebes and the rise of Athens and Sparta. That's a very important piece of background information for what's coming into this. It's all centered on the person of Oedipus and what he brings to it. Um, I don't know if uh, listeners, you should be aware that uh, Oedipus's name, Oedipus, um, means clubfoot. It refers to the injury he received from being exposed as an infant so that what actually happened wouldn't happen. Um, and, and that's a wonderful point of discussion if you're talking about this book with folks is the ethics of his father's choice to attempt to avert disaster, not only for himself, but for the entire city of Thebes, from the standpoint of being able to look back and seeing how global that disaster became with the entire collapse of Greek civilization for a time. Um, is it as clear cut that that was just an, an act that ought under no circumstances to have been taken? So Oedipus carries with him the... You know, his father's attempts to rescue his people from a calamity that's looming. And he carries within himself the seeds of the destruction of the city, quite literally, and the sons he will uh, father on his mother. Um, and and then, of course, that sets up the reign. After the, set, after the Theban War ends, Creon comes out on top. And Creon is sort of a notoriously cruel king, and we see that represented in Antigone. So there's a lot wrapped up in this story beyond the local events that we're tracking in this, in this in this little period here. And my suspicion is that somewhere in there is the answer to your question, uh, right? That it does matter so much that it's Oedipus because this man's fortunes will d direct the fortunes of the entire peninsula for centuries to come. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Well, that would make more sense and why Aristotle can put that as second when he's talking about it, because if that's true, then, yeah, certainly that would have been I, it, in some ways, I guess it's almost more powerful with the fact that in some of this is unsaid by Sophocles. I mean, it's not it's there, but it's you have to know. Um, and so maybe that subtlety gives it a little bit of an extra punch than if he made it super obvious. Yeah. It could be. I think that's a. It's, it's very likely. And and again, there's also that sense of it's the same thing you got to remember when you're reading Homer that 
everyone knows the story. No one's learning the story from Homer. Right? Mm -hmm. The story is out there in the culture. Um, in the same way that it is for us, I, you know, I express my surprise at not finding a horse in the Iliad. Um, that's normal. All of this background I was just talking about would have been in the air that everyone breathed in the same way that the that the Homer stuff is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the plot of a tragedy uh, for Aristotle has to involve reversal. That's yeah. what makes it so gut punching. You know, it's it's yes. got to really have a sharp reverse. Uh, and it can go, I think he says at one point that the reversal can be twofold. It can be uh, a, a simple or singular uh, reversal and that somebody from who's high goes is taken down low. But there can also be a kind of complex reversal where the low is brought high and the high is brought low, right. uh, like the Magnificat in the Bible. Mm, um, but uh, but I, I think... Um, every sports fan can relate to the fear that Aristotle fears in a tragedy. You know, if you're an Atlanta Falcons fan and your team is up 28 to three, and then in two short quarters, you, you lose the <laughs> Super Bowl. That's uh, that's pretty tragic. That's an oddly specific example there. <laughs> uh, I'm not a Falcons fan. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, but in some ways we're worse off because we just never make the Super Bowl. But um, because my but, team, the 49ers stands in your way. That's right. <laughs> But yeah, this that's, is, that's oh, right. And, and, and I think the thing that I've come to realize over the years um, is that that's probably the most Greek thing Aristotle ever said. <laughs> this is so unbelievably Greek. They love this notion of the gods build you up right to a point and then they throw you down. All of the instances of the deceptive prophecies that come. I don't know why people even go to the to Apollos to, to Delphi to get a prophecy because it's just a means for the gods to laugh at you when you get it wrong and run right to your own destruction. They love this theme, right? Uh, and the, the the pithiest version of expression of it that I can think of comes from Shakespeare, from King Lear, right? As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods? They kill us for sport. I think that same sort of thing's on here. So when Aristotle's cluing in on that, he's not just expressing something that is very powerful in human beings and whatnot. I think he's also expressing, uh, he's tapping into this, the really the soul of the Greek people, the ancient Greeks, um, and why, just what really maybe is kind of one of their deepest fears is when things are going really well, you're probably being set up. It's going to go really, really badly very quickly, right? Look out. And there's a part in Oedipus where he does start to kind of not curse the gods, but he definitely is asking that question and then kind of zips himself up and says, well, I'm not even going to go there. Yeah, no, nothing good is going to happen from that. Yeah, right? yeah. It's sort, of a, it's sort of a weirdly Jobin moment, but it's not... <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. I, I, when he, I was like, well, if I was you, I would totally go there. <laughs> Part of what everyone knows is that in that war that's about to come with his sons, there's a man called Caponaeus who we find in the Divine Comedy in, in Inferno, very low down, is with the with the arrogant, um, and he has the most memorable. Well, it's hard. There's two super memorable deaths in the Thebaid. He's got one of the two. The other one's the the blind prophet Tiresias who rides his chariot alive down into hell. Um, but he's, he's an atheist, which doesn't really mean he doesn't believe in the gods. It means he doesn't observe the gods. He doesn't follow them. 
And so he stands on the walls of Thebes and he's breaking the walls apart with his bare hands and throwing the stones into the city, destroying the city with its own defenses and cursing the gods the whole time and blaspheming. And so ultimately, Jove has to strike him down with a thunderbolt and that's how he dies. Um, and so when, when we see Oedipus flirting with going in that direction, everyone's getting really nervous. And then he comes back and we're like, okay, we can put it off for a little bit longer. interesting yeah so so yeah this the, the reversal um this is something that is still a major part of how we write stories today the plot twist right the thing you don't see coming it's not just for mystery stories and that sort of a thing it's it's for any good story we almost feel has got to have a turn that you couldn't see coming from the beginning that changes everything um and it, and it often turns around a piece of knowledge. In the case of Oedipus, everyone in the audience knows what Oedipus is about to find out, right? And so, uh, oh, don't don't go in the basement. Don't go down there, right? We know what's what's down there. Um, these days, it's got to be hidden. The audience has to not be able to guess it until it happens, um, because probably because we're jaded. We we have it's difficult for us to enjoy old things, right? Spoilers. A story isn't actually spoiled for knowing the ending. It's a strange way to read a story. It, it leads to you only reading everything once because once you've read it once, why would you read it again? You know what's going to happen, right? And that's sort of, you hear that like with the first three Star Wars movies, you know, it's yeah. like, well, we know how they're going to end. So it's not as exciting as when they come out with new ones, you know, but it's like, well, I mean, it is a, in many ways a tragedy. I mean, he ends up, yeah. there's a total reversal there. There is. I'm your father. I mean, that's the, it's an edible moment, right? Well, I meant, I meant the original, the, uh, I meant one through three. And that you know, like all of us watching well, know Anakin is going to end up as Darth Vader. Right. And so it's like, well, why spend the time watching these movies to to find out what we already know? Yeah, but it, anyways, the viewing experience is very similar to what the audience watching an Oedipus That's right. uh, play would be like. Because they all knew and we all know. And That's right. That's exactly right. Um, and so the, what makes the reversal the reversal then, and this is an important point we've gotten to, it's nothing to do with surprise. Because we all know what's happening. Right? Oh my gosh! It's an Oedipus play. When I buy my ticket, I know exactly what the what the what the trick is. Right? I know what the plot twist is. What what's what's terrifying about the reversal is the memento mori aspect of it. The reminder that there is no felicity, no blessedness you can attain that cannot fall away in the blink of an eye. And this connects to you know, Aristotle's claim elsewhere that I don't call anyone blessed until they're dead. Mm -hmm. How can you possibly know? No matter how good they've got it, things could go so terribly bad so very quickly that everyone would consider them cursed for, for you know, all ages to come. Right? So there's this, this sense of um, just you know, nervousness and terror that you can never rest. You can never be still uh, and and lean into the blessings you have. And there's something very honest about that in a sinful world, right? There's something we can definitely connect to even as Christians about that notion. Um, we don't find, we don't defeat that fear by saying it's not true. We defeat that fear as the Stoics recognized all that long time ago and Socrates well before them by withdrawing our hopes from the things that are capable of switching so quickly. This may be, a, a, this is a natural connection to Boethius and Fortune's Wheel, 
mm-hmm. which is one of the things in Boethius's mind in thinking about the wheel of fortune in the constellation of philosophy is precisely this turn that happens in, in all of the Greek tragedies. Yeah, I was going to say, I think what's terrifying about the reversal is that when he's talking about magnitude and, and the reversal has to have a certain magnitude, but he says that the reason that the reversal happens is because of chance and necessity together. Mm. And both of those factors in the universe of chance and necessity are always acting on us in ways that remind us that we're creatures mm. and that we're not in control. Yeah. And so it's terrifying because you really see the world for all of its chaos, horror, uh, everything out of your control, which is what Boethius is is harping on. You know, you so what you're rich right now, but, you know, in two weeks you could lose it all. And then you're going to have to figure out how to live as a poor person or you could have all the political power now and lose it in the next uh, cycle of elections or your king could just get mad at you and throw you in prison and kill you. Um, and and so then what do you have? What do yeah. you really have? Um, but it's it, those are two terrifying forces for us, chance and necessity yeah. out of our control. And this is a, you know, the Greek theology, um, there's, there's this whole argument in Greek theology that I think we touched on in the Iliad episode about what's Zeus's relationship to all this? Is he above that? Or is he, even he a slave to that? And, and you see in the early literature, both opinions and the people kind of playing with, oh, it's not clear what Zeus's relationship to that thing ought to be. And, and in many ways, what we see by the time of Boethius is a harmonization of it to say, well, it's, it's a false dichotomy to begin with. These are two different ways of looking at the one action of God towards the world. Um, but it's a strange it's 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 two strange uh, monsters to be caught between, right? I'm thinking Scylla and Charybdis, that because they seem like opposites. Mm-hmm. What's necessary is what must happen, and chance is precisely not that which must happen, but what just happens to happen. So how can these both be driving our lives when they're when they seem to be so opposite? And I, you know, the, the reality is, you know, it's an interesting question. Why are Scylla and Charybdis so close to each other? Why are there two monsters in such proximity? Because it's a symbiotic relationship. Because they're helping each other to get fed, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Boethius would, would say that there's a, there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between chance and necessity. Um, chance is stuff that didn't have to be that way, but could have been another way. But necessity is the fact that things must be some way. Mm-hmm. And so you're being brought under... Your necessity holds you under chance. It doesn't give you an escape to flee from chance. It makes you sit there while the wheel turns around and ticks and ticks and ticks until it finally settles on blessing or curse, right? And then whatever happened to turn up as the result of that is necessary for you as the creature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. right. I think it is terrifying. It is terrifying. It absolutely is. It, there's a sort of there's a certain certainly a primal fear. And I mean, I think you could probably imagine why in their cultural context, these would be even more accentuated. Um, I mean, we at least have the sort of uh, idea of, of a, of a very developed society that we live in that gives us certain safety protections. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still necessity and there's still chance, but you know, in general, we have a, I think a greater feeling of safety than yeah. somebody who lives in the Greek countryside or, or the Theban countryside at this time. Um, yeah. where you're, you're, I mean, just so many things can go wrong. And, and 
there's no insurance and there's no uh, protection really from those things. And so um, you're always being exposed to massive risk, a kind of risk that I think would probably cripple most of us if we were exposed to it. Um, And and, and COVID gave us some small inkling of what that would be like. That's right. And it was a very small bit of what they were exposed to. Right. But yeah, now imagine, now imagine too, that it could also, there could also be a famine in addition to the pandemic. Yeah. Plus your marauding armies coming through. Right. And, Plus your wife is pregnant and, you know, the infant mortality rate is huge. And I mean, just a million things can go wrong. Uh, I mean, a million things can still go wrong. But again, we manage our risk now, maybe even chronically. So, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, they're, they're both terrifying and both reminders that we're not in control, which I think raises another question about Boethius or perhaps the, the next logical con- question from Boethius would be, what would Boethius say to somebody in Oedipus's situation? Yeah. Right. You've been acted on by chance and necessity to this point. So what is there anything redemptive? Is there anything that's how do you move forward? Yeah, I, I suppose the first question I would have for Boethius about that is is do we see is Oedipus at Colonus an example of penance? Right. Is he just suffering or does his suffering have a purpose? Mm. Is there directionality to that suffering? My sense, and this is this is fairly speculative on my part, my sense is that the notion that the suffering has any sort of directionality to it is fairly foreign to the Greek context. It just is. Right? It's certainly if you look at Hesiod, you know, life is pain and work and toil, and then you die. That's the, that's the reality. All that is left for us in the age of men. Now that we've missed the golden age, the silver age, and the age of heroes, that stuff's all over. What's left for us is just toil and sweat and mud. Um, and so what are you going to do? What's, my, what's your advice, Hesiod? Do your work, I guess. I mean, I don't know. This doesn't matter. But get it. You still have to throw some food, so get to it, buddy. All right. And if that's the case, then, um, gosh, you know, I, I think for I think Boethius is going to want to come in and say, um, you have to look up. Right. Oedipus puts his eyes out because he can no longer stand to look on the world that has brought him to this past, to this this set of circumstances. And I think that might be the point where Boethius would intervene, because all the way up to this point, Oedipus has not intentionally done anything wrong. But when he gets to that point, he's been driven by necessity all the way to the end. And, And there is the point about his investigation, which we need to come back around to later. So we'll table that for a second. But all of this stuff was prophesied. And he is fortune's fool, to quote Romeo and Juliet, up to that point. Once once the revelation comes out and he knows the prophecy has been fulfilled, for the first time, he can make a choice about how to act that's not pre, uh, you know, pre-circumscribed by the, the will of the gods. That's where Boethius would say, rather than refusing to look on the world you ought to look above the world right that's what's that's what's missing and, that, and that's what i don't think aristotle has to offer neither neither sophocles nor aristotle has that in their playbook to offer which is interesting to me because i mean one of the points that boethius makes or that lady philosophy makes to boethius repeatedly is that uh not only should he look above there is that sense too but that he should look in inward 
mm. that there are things that can never be taken from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can have a lot of money or no money, but that doesn't affect whether you're temperate or prudent or uh, if you have fortitude or whatever other virtue. Yeah. And so, you know, we get this Boethius or this Oedipus guy who is, I mean, he does seem to have virtue. He, he shows up, he cares about his people. He saved them through his intelligence from the mm -hmm. Sphinx. And um, in general, he seems like a beloved ruler. I mean, the chorus uh, has nothing but positive things to say about him. Um, even once it becomes clearer that it's probably going the direction it's going, they say they won't believe it until they have actual firm proof because they mm -hmm. care about him so much. Yeah. So he is uh, a virtuous person. And, and even though he's in this terrible situation, I mean, he didn't choose it. So it's not like he's culpable. There's not a moral component to what's happened in terms of, of he's guilty or not guilty uh, explicitly mm -hmm. uh, anyways. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 as I was reading it, and, and I'm aware I'm probably being very conditioned by a sort of uh, long cogitation of Christian thinking about these things, and that's probably influencing the way I'm, I'm viewing it. But I don't know. It, yeah, some of his reaction seems perhaps immoderate or immeasured, uh, considering that he didn't choose, I mean, if he had chosen it, knowing what what really the reality was, then of course that's a that's a that's a real monstrosity. But yeah. uh, where he is in the play, I mean, it's 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 chance and necessity, and he can't control it. What he can control is is in here. So then, what about hubris? Hmm. Right, because that's his tragic flaw, isn't it? Yep. And so there's a sense in which, you know. What specifically is he proud about that leads to all this? And I think, if I'm right about this, this is a massive deal. I think his hubris, the object of his hubris, or the subject of his hubris, or whatever the right way to describe this is, the thing that he's proud about, is that he can get around prophecy. And that's a, that's a species of blasphemy. I think that's probably it. Mm. And of course, you know, forgiveness, there's no for, forgiveness is not a category of Greek theology, right? The, the gods punish you and then they relent from punishing you when they've had enough. And it doesn't really have much to do with, you know, you can earn their punishment, you can't earn their relenting, and it's really kind of not up to you. You need a divine advocate to step in and please your case and get the angry God to back down, right? And so, Oedipus, when Oedipus finally realizes everything that's really happened, you know, he sees behind the curtain. And um, it's, it's like when you watch one of those movies, um, I think it's like Now You See Me or one of these movies like that or, or any the the uh, Knives Out movie where you suddenly, you get to the end and it's like, oh, that's what was going on. And you, and you almost want to go around and start watching it from the beginning right away because now everything looks different. When Oedipus reaches that moment, the gods are done. Right? They've 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 taken their vengeance already, and now they don't really care what happens to him after this point. Everything after Oedipus at Colonus is an epilogue. Mm -hmm. um, it's an epilogue to Oedipus' life, and it's also an epilogue to the massive global destruction that's going to be unleashed as a result of the choices that he made. But it all centers then in not being humble before the will of the gods, which is fascinating because that wouldn't mean that anything could be different, right? The point is you can't circumvent the prophecy. That's hubris. So perhaps 
I'm trying to imagine what would it look like to approach that without the tragic flaw and nothing is different externally, but it seems like everything must be different internally. Then. Maybe that's how you arrive at the place that Lady Philosophy is talking about. If you lack pride, if you come in humility at the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, then you won't be destroyed by the event, by the outcome of it. One wonders too what exactly it looks like to not try to escape the specific Oedipal prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mom! <laughs> seems like seems like something you should just try to escape, you know, yeah. hubris or not. But yeah, no, you're exactly. I think you're exactly right uh, that it is a sort of sacrilege, um, and that does seem to be the that does seem to be a big theme in Greek theology is knowing your place, mm -hmm. and uh, of course. I mean, that is also true of Christian theology in many ways, but the human place is very different, I think. Yeah. And, and I also think it's worth mentioning that I think as, an, as a 21st century American, I'm always wanting to know, like, OK, what's the way out? Like, what's the what could he have done to have a good outcome? I'm pretty sure I mean, the Greeks are totally fine with. No, there's no possible way like this, this could not ever go well. That's actually the tragedy of it. Right. Is that. Oedipus's name was always going to be a byword among the nations, no matter what choices he made. That's the, the end of it. Now, how badly that broke him internally, maybe that was up to him. Mm -hmm. but, right. In fact, the reaction is interesting because there are, the way he's described when he goes into the bedroom, when he finds her hanging from the ceiling, that he, he, he's walking around like an uncaged animal. Mm. And so you have this kind of irrationality that he's kind of gives himself over to, mm -hmm. which I mean, it's hard to blame the guy. I'm not saying I'm, <laughs> I'm not telling him how he should act. It's just you could imagine Lady Philosophy saying, maybe emphasizing the the need for rationality in a situation okay. like that. You're a rational just, animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would say, "Why are you? Why are you so beside yourself? You know, you're letting those <laughs> those muses, those angry sluts, uh, you know, tell you what to do." Um, so maybe she would say, uh, emphasize self, the need for self control in such a situation, and 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 the use of of one's reason. But it's also hard to imagine how one could be reasonable at at such a time. That's right. Uh, the the thing about Job, you made that comparison. The thing about Job is. Um, Job actually doesn't have any reason to be angry at God. He's got it all wrong, right? Oedipus is actually right. Like he does have reason to be angry at the gods. This is this is not some sort of test of his virtue. This is not making some larger point. This is not something particular. This is he's got a bum deal, man. He's dealt a bum hand by the by the the urn. In some ways, I think the works are making very similar points because mm -hmm. you know, the, the framework Job and his friends have is this very mechanistic view of the universe that yeah. doesn't acknowledge chance or necessity. Yeah. If I do good things, good things happen to me. If I do bad things, bad things happen to me, bad things are happening to me, but I did good things. So therefore something's off in the cosmic ledger Yeah. or Job's friends, you bad things are happening to you. So you did do something wrong and you better mm -hmm. repent. That's right. But there's no room for, nuance there right? right it's like if you only had the book of proverbs and you only ever read the book of proverbs you would come away with a really weird view of the world i mean That's you would right. almost have a sort of american prosperity gospel view of the world yeah. yeah um and and you know that's why the the rest of the scripture i mean there's the whole corpus of wisdom literature 
Ecclesiastes is a great way to balance the Proverbs. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Psalms. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, these are uh, general principles. You should live wisely and you should be in control. But, you know, I mean, we see this today, right? I mean, you could be a fit person who prioritizes your physical health, go on runs regularly, eat healthy, and you could die at a young age uh, because you get something like cancer or have a stroke or something, you know, genetic that you can't control. Yeah, um, meanwhile, you could be a smoker, smoke a pack a day, eat McDonald's, drink a lot, and you could live to 90. Right. Uh, because now that's not, a, it doesn't mean you should, but, <laughs> but you could. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, so there's always this chance and necessity aspect that just means where we can't control it. And I think the, the per- one of the purposes of the book of Job is to disabuse us of that idea that we're in control. And I think that there's something similar going on with Oedipus that uh, maybe in a more nihilistic way but it is it is a, a similar reminder yeah it's really fascinating that i mean between boethius and oedipus rex there's almost a thousand years um and we if we put stick the book of job in there that's going to push us five six hundred years who knows how much earlier than that still it's a huge swath of of history during which uh western culture and submitted culture are turning around this question over and over again but what do we do with the chance thing? Like how how are we supposed to respond to that fact of chance? And Chaucer's still asking the same question a thousand years after Boethius in conversation with the constellation of philosophy. Mm. Um, as we, when we get to the Troilus, it'll be a really fun entry into this conversation because we've got a piece written in the uh, late 14th century that is calling back to the Trojan War and yeah. is asking Boethius's questions about the Trojan War, right? Um, and there is a helplessness that uh, the Greeks are really good at. The Greeks are really good at the whole mortal thing, right? The gods are happy. Why? Because they're deathless. That's the one thing Homer links their blessedness to in um, in the Iliad. And then in the New Testament, Jesus takes Homer's word, makarios, which is applied to the gods, not to people, and Jesus applies that word to those who suffer in this life. And he gives you the reason why they experience the type of blessedness that the gods who are immune to death and suffering have because they will be given what the gods have on the far side of things. Hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a massive, it's a really unbelievably subtle interaction with this cultural history of reflecting on these questions that we see in the Beatitudes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One can understand, I guess, why Nietzsche has such a problem with Christianity being a slave religion, uh, given that massive reversal. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, perhaps Nietzsche was, Nietzsche was um, deeply fascinated, even obsessed with Greek tragedy. Yes, that's I think right. This is all just showing how well constructed this season of the Classical Mind podcast is, listeners. Been, we'll be going through many of these texts together over the next several months. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and even even our next reading, which is Euthyphro by Plato, uh, will have some at least tangential bearing on this conversation. I mean, the kind of nature of the gods. And we're talking right now about how cruel they can be and how they build you up. You know, well, is it is it because they're just or, or is what they're doing just because they said that it is? And so, yeah, I think, yeah, all these all these readings are very connected. Um Great minds or something like that. Classical minds. Classical minds. The thing you said just then uh, struck a chord. They'll build you up. 
I suddenly remembered, what if we thought, let's think the Iliad from the standpoint of Hector for a moment. Mm. Where mm -hmm. Zeus reveals to Hera after the gods will not come in line, he finally says, listen, lady, the reason I'm doing all of this, I'm building Hector up so that Achilles can seize immortal fame when he kills him. If if I'm Hector, I'm like, wait, say what? <laughs> Excuse me? Yep. Right? He's every good thing he's experiencing and all of his nobility and all of that sort of stuff is just a foil. It's it's a means to raise Achilles higher. Uh Hector's story is a is a Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think we often think of it deeply enough from that side that there needs to be a, a, a greek play written about hector that explores just this sense of how he's being toyed with yeah yeah which is exactly i think that conversation we had in the iliad episode are you a are you a hector guy or an achilles guy and it's i sort of all of the reasons that i find hector to be a character that i'm drawn to are precisely because he is very much in line with aristotle's definition of the tragic hero he's better than me he's he's yeah. he's up here you know he's willing yeah. to he's willing to go to his death for the people he loves i mean that's a really really admirable character and yeah, yeah what does he get I mean, in return second greatest fighter in the in, in of his generation you know all of these things the scotty pippen <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh I was just glancing over the list of the um, tragedies that won the Dionysia Festival at Athens, where they would compete uh, every year. The top playwrights would bring a new play and compete for the prize. And I don't, there, there are none of them that it is clear from the title have uh, take Hector as their subject. Mm. There, there may, there may simply be an us them type thing sure. going on there. But, but it's interesting that. I think Homer has a, a due sense of the tragic character of Hector and is and is deeply you can see affection in how Homer treats Hector. It's 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 not quite the affection Eumaeus the swineherd gets in the Odyssey, but it's still mm -hmm. um, he's treated very tenderly and sympathetically. Well, wisdom's children are vindicated because you know Dante puts Hector in limbo, so right, that's right. <laughs> he gets he gets some well, not really a reward, but he at least doesn't get a punishment. I'm like Odysseus. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and Achilles, both. Yeah. Well, let's perhaps talk maybe one more wrinkle in the story that we could talk about is um, knowledge yeah. and the pursuit of it. Because the, the story, I mean, really the driving force of, Odysseus, of uh, Oedipus finding out about his terrible past is his persistence yeah at any point in the story there are probably four or five explicit times he could have just stopped yeah but he wants to keep going um and i was reminded of of the matrix when morpheus talks about kind of that discomfort people feel and he says it's like a splinter in the mind you know and you have to keep going is this is this a good thing or not I mean, on the one hand, as rational creatures, you know, to know is a good thing. On the other hand, you know, maybe at times it would be better to just not do that investigation. I don't know. Yes, right. I mean, it was supposed to be good 
to seek the truth. And we should always want to know the truth and try for it. You can't handle the truth, Adam. That's right. <laughs> uh, just stop, right? You could be happy. Just let it go, man. Don't ask questions you don't want to hear the answers to. And we all know that morbid fascination that makes you keep pushing and pushing and uncovering the, the absolute horrors that lie beyond the next door. Uh, how many horror movies would just end well if, if the characters could just not open that door and just leave, right? Just get out of there and just- Call 911. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> call anyone. However, in Oedipus's defense, um, there is the opening choral, uh, it's not the chorus, actually, it's the priest, right? And he says, our city, look around you, see with your own eyes. Our ship pitches wildly, cannot lift her head from the depths, the red waves of death. Thebes is dying. A blight on the fresh crops and the rich pastures, cattle sicken and die, and the women die in labor, children stillborn, in the plague. The fiery god of fever hurls down on the city, his lightning slashing through us, raging plague in all its vengeance, devastating the house of Cadmus. And black death luxuriates in the raw, wailing miseries of Thebes. So he does have some incentive for pressing on. That's right. He does. He does. In many ways, I mean, Oedipus as scapegoat is very interesting as well. Um, mm. I mean, he's willing. It, from the beginning, he makes it clear he's willing to sacrifice for his people. Yeah. And he ultimately makes the greatest sacrifice in that he he takes on this uh, curse of the city onto his own person and is expelled from the city, which very much resembles the the liturgy from Leviticus 16, where the people put the sins on the one goat and they send it out into the into the wilderness. Um, and so that that is uh, certainly an incentive for him to move forward. But at a certain point, it does shift, and you know he just wants to know where he came from. Um, mm. he, in fact, he articulates that multiple times later. He'll, he says, I want to know the mystery of my birth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, so it's, it's, it's when, not just it's, – so it's complicated, right, uh, which, is, which is really good writing, that he's got an external thing driving him on, but – you're right. When when we read this thing, we feel the internal thing is really driving him, is moving him more than all of these calamities that I was just reading about in the city. I guess when Plato uh, says that we escape the cave and it hurts our eyes, he didn't quite mean like this, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do. I do think that there's something noble about it. Um, that kind of dogged pursuit of the truth, regardless of the consequences, I think is still a better, in some ways, more human thing to do um, than to just kind of allow oneself to be lulled into ignorance by uh, through through comfort or whatever or or security, uh, a need for security. One one can respect Oedipus for following the truth to its consequences however horrible they are uh, i've never quite found it persuasive when someone you know kind of says well you don't want to um uncover all the truth because it might upset things it's like well maybe that means things should be upset right, right. i mean so, what's the alternative odysseus or oedipus continues to live with his mother wife and have more and more people die sibling children yeah, yeah i mean like the the city is the, the picture that we get here at the beginning from the priest is this can't go on because there won't be a Thebes anymore. Right. 
right? Thebes is going to disappear from the face of the earth if something doesn't change. Um, and so, yeah, you do have to uncover that. I wonder, uh, I don't know, like we today can respect Oedipus's relentless search for the truth, even though it costs them everything. I don't know how the Greeks would have thought about it. Sure. Right? Would they think, yeah, he should have stopped? Or would they think, no, like, absolutely, you've got to press through. I think I can, I think I know what Aristotle would think. I can see, I think Aristotle would think, yes, he needed to press on to find the truth. Uh, that's what makes him a philosopher king at the end of the day, right? Um, but I wonder um, if, the, if the Greek opinion might have been divided on this. There might have been some who thought, you know, could have been fine. I, I think a lot of people even today would would be okay with kind of saying, well, maybe maybe some things you just leave. Yeah. In in some ways, that is always the choice of those who deny transcendence. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, you have to stop the questioning and say, I'm just not going to scratch that. I'm not going to pick at that scab any further because there might actually be something there. Uh, the theologian Herbert McCabe says that he says uh, the atheist is the person who just refuses to ask one more question. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but absolutely, I, it, yeah, it's it, and and and. That's, I think, and I think Aristotle would agree with this as well, but I think, yeah, that idea of transcendence is so integral to being human. Yeah. That it's inhumane. It's it's knowing that you're settling for an artificial reality. Yes. Whereas Oedipus, uh, I guess, maybe it's an overused word, but there's a sort of authenticness to that. You know? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's the Matrix again. Yeah. Right? Choosing to be reinserted into the matrix so that you can have the illusion rather than the reality because now you see how bad the reality really is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's part of the warning here then for those of us who work in the classical tradition, who love the great books and the great ideas, is to say um, you're not free not to seek the truth. You, you've come too far for that, right? You've now, now that you've seen the things you've seen, you have to keep pressing on. But just be aware that um, there's a lot of ugliness that you're going to find about yourself and the things you've done as you press into that truth. There's going to be um, there's going to need to be some some putting out of eyes, but not in a directionless sense as it is for Oedipus, but in the sense of repentance and even penance mm. as we come to that. And so it's it's a dangerous, a very dangerous task that you enter upon this this path of self knowledge. If you're going to obey the it's the Delphic Oracle that tells us to know ourselves. And, and you know the Delphic Oracle is always, it's a sadistic bastard, right? Yes. So it's not going to end well. But nevertheless, what other choice does the wise man have? In some ways, I, I was just reading, um, I've been reading uh, Dante. Uh, we're going through it at my church. And, uh, you know, when he gets to Limbo and all of his heroes are there, mm. you know, it's Virgil's Circle, Plato, Aristotle. I mean, they all show up. You know, there's a great temptation for him to want to just stick around. Right. In fact, that might be the most dangerous circle. Yeah. He could get stuck there, but he has to remember what he's really called to, which involves Mm -hmm. having to go deeper before he can go up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I think people always miss about the divine comedy, it was easy to miss, is that when he gets on the shores of purgatory, his face is filthy from the smoke and the soot of hell but also just from his tears that he's been weeping constantly the whole time. And it's, it's weeping in pity for which he gets in trouble over and over again with Virgil. But I mean, you got to imagine just like, he's been ugly crying for like three days. Yep. And, and that's, 
that's written on his face when he arrives at the shores of purgatory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it is better to know then we're saying it is better to know, but just be ready. It's going to cost you. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's, what's great about these great books. I think what makes them great is that, and we've talked about this, I think before that they are a mirror yeah. for the reader um, and, and, and why they deserve revisiting every so often, even if you've already read it, uh, because where you are now is not where you were the first time you read it. And the you that's picking this book up now might have more to say to it. And the book might have more to say to you. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, it, it, it turns, it, it makes me think of the last thing that I think we have to make sure we address here, which is Aristotle's notion of catharsis. Yeah. Um, his notion is that these types of stories by evoking these powerful emotions can purge them. Um, I've been I've been afraid and I pitied Oedipus and so now I don't have to be afraid anymore. Um, the first time I remember that being problematized for me in my experience was after I was a senior in I was in college sophomore was on my second or third year of college um, and I I was in a Shakespeare class and we had just watched um, the production of Richard the Third where Ian McKellen plays Richard the Third. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a wonderful, it's a masterful performance, but it's deeply disturbing in a variety of levels. And it, and it ends with him as he's sort of falling to his death and metaphorically falling into hell, sort of laughing in glee. And it's, it's so incongruous. And I just sat there. This is a tragedy. You know, it's a Shakespearean tragedy. And I'm sitting there after the, the instructor has stopped the movie and class is over and everyone's gathering the things to leave and I'm just not moving. And one of my fellow students came over to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm waiting for catharsis. <laughs> and, and like Godot, it never came. I, to this day, I still have no catharsis for Richard III. Um, I'm just deeply troubled by specifically that production of it. And I think that I want to sound a warning to the, to the listener here that either Aristotle is not right about catharsis or he's not entirely right. Um, the notion that we can purge powerful feelings by experiencing them has led to a kind of permissiveness about what we allow ourselves to take in in our entertainment. Um, you know, oh, it's okay if I watch movies that per contain this sort of thing or whatever, because by the very watching of them, I'll get them out. And I've, and I've made that very argument myself. You know, I'll say, oh, well, I, you know, I shoot people in video games, so I don't have to in real life. <laughs> the, the reality is, which stopping me from shooting people in real life is probably not getting to do it in the video game. It's probably <laughs> right. the laws, right? Something, something a little stronger than that. But the deeper question that the rest of the classical tradition would have us ask, and no later than by the time we come to someone like Tertullian, who's questioning whether Christians can go to the games and the plays and whatnot and come away unscathed, is the following. Even if you can purge those emotions by seeing them acted out in front of you, they have not left you unscathed. What have they done to your soul in the time that you were feeling them? They've moved you either towards virtue or vice. Why would you think that they would have moved you towards virtue, given the nature of them? Mm. So I, to me, that's a, this is a strong warning label that needs to be slapped under the poetics these days um, that... Um, catharsis doesn't seem to work or no longer works or whatever in the way that Aristotle 
argues that it does, and that he may have, even at the very beginning of thinking it this way, we may have missed the fact that the things that come into us and go through us and pass out of us leave traces behind. Yeah, we we become what we behold. Mm. And so when we, yeah, when we make those choices about what we watch, there should be wisdom. I mean, in some ways, you know, you, you do need to tell stories like this story. Yes. Um, I'm trying. So, so I'll tell you a story. We, we, when we were first married, uh, went to go see the Wolf of Wall Street, mm. having no idea what was in the Wolf of Wall Street, other than mm. that we just seen some previews on TV. Well, it's an incredibly vulgar film. Now, mm. I'm not sure you could make a film like that without including the vulgarity that's in the film. Because to tell that story, you really do have to come face to face with the utter depravity that the sort of greed and wealth uh, produces in the main character. At the same time, I'm also not sure that that means that most people should see it. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, I'm not saying it shouldn't have been made. I'm saying maybe it shouldn't be a bestseller, top of the box office, you know, (laughs) movie. Yeah, right. (laughs) Because a lot of people don't think through it in such a way that they are engaging with it thoughtfully. Yeah. In fact, I would have ventured to guess a lot of people see that movie and go, man, he had it really good. <laughs> but in reality, those are the, the worst parts for his soul. When he's right. so successful. That's right. Um, so it's very important that we, uh, you know, no matter what we're reading, whether it's Oedipus or Wolf of Wall Street or whatever, that we engage it with a certain degree of wisdom, understanding a, a difference, I think, between a sort of description and prescription but it's very hard when you're consuming especially uh, a film or or a really good book to sometimes see the difference between those two things yeah that's Um, right and i it's interesting i was just having coffee with a buddhist priest recently which is you know like at the beginning of a joke an anglican (laughs) priest and a buddhist priest walk into a bar um and and the thing that he said that that kind of stuck with me was that the the first time he knew that Buddhism was something he needed to pursue was when he went to his first kind of meditation, group meditation, and somebody said something like, the thoughts that come into your head, you can't control, but also they're not you. Mm -hmm. There's that distance between who you actually are and what just pops in your head. Mm -hmm. And so when, when those emotions come, yeah, they're there, but they don't have to be the sort of controlling things that Socrates or Aristotle seems to sort of think that they are. And, and often we let them be those yeah. things, yeah. but, um, but learning how to deal with those thoughts as they arise in a, in a healthier way. Uh, you know, for some people, maybe that does mean being able to look at, at an Oedipus story, but for some people it might require more work. Yeah, you know, that's right. There's a we are you're meant to learn prudence from reading these things and thinking about these things. And part of prudence is knowing when not to look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that because of your uh, rich study in the classical tradition, you are prepared to look at certain things and um, and 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 be able to navigate your way through the dangers of those uh, and, and come out safely on the side. And yet it doesn't necessarily mean that you ought to do that often. Right. 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 Yeah. This actually kind of brings us to the end notes. It's directly applicable to what I am going to pick for end notes. So do you want to go first for your end note? And, no, you uh, go first. Okay. Okay. So 
we have a listener, Monique, who's awesome. She's been with us for a very long time and is very active in, in conversations. And she pointed me to a podcast a while back uh, by, I, I forget the man who runs it, but it's, it's an organization called Theater of War. Mm. And basically their organization is built on a, on a scholarly theory that the tragedies were designed as a way for Greek people, many of whom would have fought in some kind of war or, or other uh, in their lives, uh, deal with the sort of PTSD that comes with that. And of course, what we know about veterans now and the rate of PTSD, and even if you don't have PTSD, you might have something like moral injury, which is very similar uh, in terms of symptoms, but it affects different parts of the brain. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, they go into these situations where there's a lot of violence and they come out and they're never the same and so it was thought that the the tragedy was a technology to help them cope not only with the fact that there are things outside of your control learning some of the same things we've been talking about but also there's a kind of communal element to the theater you know you're there with a bunch of people hey i'm going to the play with the guy that i fought next to during a bunch of battles and we're working through this together and yeah. so theater of war gets really famous actors to perform mm. these kinds of play they do oedipus and they do a couple other uh you know famous tragedies and they do them usually in communities with vets wow. uh and 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 kind of have a discussion together about how they how they process through their experiences using the the work and so i think that's a really cool project um he's i, I i'll have to post the link to the podcast um because i'm trying to remember what his name was but um but it, it was really interesting to listen to. And, and it really adds another dimension to the tragedy as a genre. You know, if you, if you understand, that's probably what they were, what they were using it for. Wow. That's really, really good. Why not let you go first? <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried to get you out of it. You warned me. Yeah. Okay. So I'll try you to were fated to do it that way. That's right. That's it. Hubris, man. Well, what I've got is uh, entirely different. Listeners. Um, I have a play by J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan. Hmm. And this play is called Dear Brutus. And it is uh, a really, really powerful play. I teach it in my fairies course uh, because it features fairy elements in it. Um, but it's the title is a reference to the line in Shakespeare, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. That's a much better literary allusion to that than the other famous book that alludes to that of recent memory. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's exploring the tragedies of particular lives and the ways that they're driven by the things that are internal to this, this group of characters, a small group of characters, rather than they start off the play blaming everything but themselves. And they come to a point where they're shown that they have exactly only themselves to blame for the things they don't like about their lives. And then the third act is this sort of, okay, so what do we do with that then? And how do they try to reintegrate that? And there's a varying response as they come back in. So I think it's a really interesting way to uh, continue to reflect on this question of chance, necessity, uh, hubris, the, tra the tragic flaw, and some of these things that Aristotle is putting out there, but it's reflecting on it in a way that brings a, a more modern sensitivity to some of those things. It is one of the most delightful plays I've read ever and one of my one of the surprising discoveries of the last uh four or five years for me into the literary text and so jm barry's dear brutus excellent excellent i will certainly be putting that on my to read list 
Well, very good. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, for tuning in and for for following along with us in these great texts. Our next text I'm very excited about will be Euthyphro by Plato, which I have a feeling we'll have, an, have many uh, lines of discussion that we'll want to follow through that um, because uh, being both uh, interested in classical texts and also in theology, I think that there's there's a lot we can do with uh, with a short uh, dialogue like that. That's right. Well, excellent. Well, listeners, thank you so much. And in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>